freelance journalists remain at more risk than staff journalists because they are often going on their own to dangerous places in the world without necessarily having received training or having any kind of tactical or security support if something happens to them. Welcome to the Pen and Sword podcast from Stratfor. I'm Fred Burden. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with the head of the Global Foundation whose mission is to protect journalists who are reporting from war zones. Margot Ewing directs the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation, named for the journalist who was kidnapped and brutally and publicly beheaded by ISIS in 2014. Foley was reporting in Syria at the beginning of the bloody, brutal civil war that continues to this day. Many journalists like James Foley make their living reporting truth from conflict zones, often bringing to the world's attention the first information about developments that will drive global geopolitics for decades. Margot, welcome to the Peninsula Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me a little bit more about the James W. Foley Foundation and how did you get involved with it? Sure. So um, as you mentioned, we were founded uh, in 2014 after the kidnapping and murder of James Foley um, by ISIS in Syria. Um, And Jim was a freelance uh, journalist, an American freelance journalist, um, unfortunately not the only one working uh, under that circumstance in the Middle East in very dangerous areas of the world. Um, and the family and his very close friends started the foundation to kind of continue his legacy of moral courage, seeking uh, truth in areas of the world where it was very hard to um, understand what was going on, bringing news of these places to the American people, but also people around the world, um, trying to understand and, and speak for Syrians who are struggling through the conflict. Um, But we also focus on um, helping other families who have a loved one uh, who is uh, either being held hostage by a non-state group like a terrorist organization or a criminal organization or being wrongfully detained by a foreign government. So we do have a whole focus in our mission that's in addition to promoting journalist safety, which focuses on advocating for the freedom of all Americans held hostage abroad. Um, So we have really kind of uh, grown in the last five or so years since we've been um, in uh, operation. Uh, And I joined the Foley Foundation about a year ago. Um, I was uh, at another press freedom organization uh, called Reporters Without Borders. So I had been working on journalist safety issues uh, before, and I had been with that organization for about four years It's been really wonderful to kind of grow our operations here in Washington, D.C., and most of the D.C.-based focus is on the hostage advocacy piece because we do engage with the U.S. government on a regular basis on many of the cases of Americans being held all around the world, and uh, they're unfortunately targets of of kidnapping or wrongful detention um, becoming a pawn in, in one country's hostage diplomacy like we see in Iran and like we're now seeing in Venezuela. So um, it's really something that people think is removed from them, but in reality, uh, it could impact anyone traveling. Um, And so we really are trying to raise awareness on that issue. Well, thank you for your efforts. I know a little bit about this topic because uh, I was a special agent with the State Department, and I worked on 
most of the early hostage-taking cases uh, in the 1980s of Americans and journalists specifically kidnapped in Lebanon, and I was part of the the group that's job was to try to figure out where the hostages were being held and ways to try to get access to them. And uh, I have, I'm still very good friends with uh, Charlie Glass, who was a hostage held by Hezbollah. And at the time of his abduction, he was working for ABC News. And and then, of course, we had Terry Anderson with the AP that had been abducted as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, it is a topic that uh, is of personal interest to me. And I know how important it is to uh, to have these kinds of efforts. So, and I also know how difficult it is to find hostages, uh, having looked for them as well, and just the challenges and the horrific impact that it has on family. But for someone like me, I just can't thank you enough for what you're doing to to try to help not only the hostages and the Americans kidnapped, but also for the families who, you know, I know it's gotten better, Margot, but, you know, back in our day, it was difficult to deal with the families who don't understand how come the government can't do more. Right. And and I think the Foley family and the Sotloff family, the Kasig family and the Mueller family, these are the four Americans that were killed by ISIS and, and held by ISIS around the same period of time with Jim. Um they were exposed to the old system where there wasn't enough government coordination across different agencies where it was clear that one hand wasn't talking to the other yeah. and efforts were not being communicated across different um, different areas of expertise, but also information wasn't being communicated to the families. I think that there was a lot of insurances that everything possibly, you know, feasible was being done, but there weren't any specifics. And often there were things that the U.S. government could not do. Their hands were tied. Uh, They couldn't make ransom payments. And I think had the families had a little bit more forthcoming communication from the government, that would have been much clearer for them. And they would have had maybe doors open so that they could work with third party experts who might be able to assist them where the government could not. Unfortunately, families were also threatened with prosecution if they paid a ransom at that time, which is just an awful thing to tell a family member that's going through this, that are ready to mortgage their house so that they can pay and and get their, their child's freedom, especially as other countries' nationals were coming out of captivity, that they were being held hostage with other Western countries who were paying ransom, and they were coming home. So because of the tragedy and the murder of, of these Americans and, and the, the outrage of the families, Diane Foley, our president and founder, was in particular uh, critical to pushing the U.S. government to do more that we can and should do better by our, by our fellow citizens. So there was a post- hostage policy overhaul that uh, President Obama put into place with a presidential policy directive and executive order in June 2015. And this created the current hostage framework that we have in place today that President Trump has maintained and continued to make a a priority in his administration. So I think that there are definitely improvements from that that policy directive, which included the creation of an interagency fusion cell, which is currently housed at the FBI, 
um, a special presidential envoy for hostage affairs at the State Department and an overseeing body at the National Security Council called the Hostage Response Group, which is supposed to make high-level policy decisions and try to link everything up to the executive. And I agree with you on that point, uh, and I can speak firsthand to that issue. Uh, you know, back on my back on our watch, we had this housed inside the CIA Counterterrorism Center. Uh, although the State Department Consular Affairs Bureau did have a point of contact that would liaise with the family, but you know it was a bit of a cludge and a mess because you did have overlapping interests and, uh, of course, turf battles between the FBI and the CIA and the State Department, and it was a bit of a mess. So guys like me that were working behind the scenes to try to find the hostages, we would occasionally interface with a family member to collect information, but it, it certainly wasn't a well-oiled machine. So, you know, I applaud President Obama's initiatives and getting this elevated to this kind of level. But, you know, I've talked about this a lot too, Margot, in my books, that, you know, at the end of the day, there are people, and I know I was one of them, that went to work every day trying to find the hostages behind the scenes but I had no control over what the bosses or the talking heads above me wanted to do, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. And, and and we know that that's the case today as well. And that's why these mechanisms that were put in place, uh, at least for the hostage recovery fusion cell, there is a family engagement coordinator that is supposed to manage communication with the families so that there's that and that's awesome incorporated into it. What we have seen um, in our work since the Foley Foundation started and, you know, within the first five years of this policy um, is that Americans are also being wrongfully detained by foreign governments and they right. are not right. receiving some of the same benefits that a hostage family might receive. They're typically not worked through the hostage recovery fusion cell, so they don't, they're not getting the same kind of declassification of information and that family engagement piece. They're often routed over to the State Department, uh, whether it's with consular affairs and or the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. And that has been um, an exercise that we have seen to disproportionately impact certain families where they don't feel like their case is getting enough attention or they're getting enough information from the government on what's being done. And so we see that as a real gap that has to be addressed in the policy. And that's why we publish research studies from the perspective of hostages and their families, as well as detainees, to kind of explain and lay out for the government areas for improvement, but areas also that work. We'll get back to our conversation with Margot Ewing in a moment, but I wanted to take this break to tell you about Stratfor's work to support the James Foley Legacy Foundation and its journalists by providing full access to our real-time security and intelligence information in areas where they may be reporting and the geopolitical background, context, and analysis of the places in which they travel. There's a well-known saying that journalism is often the first rough draft of history. We at Stratfor could not agree more. Our analysts rely on the reporting of dedicated journalists around the world as we work to develop and produce analysis-based forecasts about how what happens today will influence the workings of the world in the future. Stratfor believes that a free and protected press is essential and necessary to an informed global community, and we are proud to help do our part to protect press freedom and safety. To learn more about our work, please visit stratfor.com slash subscribe. 
you'll find a special offer for podcast listeners. Thank you. Margot, I know that, you know, we have uh, at least one Texas journalist, Austin Tice, that... Uh, yes. So we have worked with the Tice family. Um, they also have worked with a huge group of very helpful organizations, including my former employer, Reporters Without Borders, which uh, started the first public campaign awareness campaign for Austin, the Free Austin Tice campaign. Yeah. Um, so that was a game changer because up before that point, American journalists were not used to being advocates for their fellow colleagues who were, you know, in situations like Austin has found himself in. Whereas in countries like France, for example, you'll have entire support committees for journalists and all the news programs will have a little crawler with the number of days that their colleagues have been in captivity. So um, the Tice family has gotten a lot of public support in that respect. And so we continue to, you know, keep keep tabs on his case and see what the family needs. But they've, you know, essentially been unfortunately working at this for almost eight years this summer yeah. Um, since yeah. Austin first um, went missing in, in Syria. Um, and so they've got, you know, their contacts down uh, at this point, which is an unfortunate thing to have to develop is to, is to feel real comfortable with all the people who are working on a hostage case. We do also work with the Levinson family. We really felt that for the Levinson family, it was important that the Foley Foundation highlight the fact that there are many people who are actually living through a hostage ordeal. We we really want to try and continue to raise awareness about that case because there have been prisoner releases from Iran that have not included Bob. Yeah. And and they have not included some other prisoners who've been there since before the twenty sixteen release that freed Jason Rezaian and several other Americans. Bakr and, and uh, Siamak Namazi have been there um, since before then and have not come home. And then you have Michael White, who's also in Iran and doesn't frequently get mentioned. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. American, I think his name is Murad Tabaz, but I'm, I might be saying it wrong. He was sentenced, I believe, to 10 years in a decision that also sentenced uh, multiple other individuals uh, because this American is an environmental activist, and that's why he was arrested in Iran. So there are still, unfortunately, people that have been left behind that we need to work to free. Um, and Iran is one of those countries that has a history of, of, of doing this uh, and has one of the higher numbers of, of Americans being held there. And we unfortunately think there are probably many more cases than those that are listed publicly. Well, uh, I don't disagree with you on that. I mean, my office... You know, when I started in the business, we had the original hostage files from the American embassy takeover in 1979. And one of the ways that I learned how to debrief a hostage was to look at how the Americans held captive in the embassy takeover in Tehran and studied those and then talked to some of those hostages before I, you know, we started to go out and do our debriefings. And you know, the problem with Iran, Margot, on this topic and hostage taking is that they typically use the hostages, specifically the Americans, as tools of foreign policy, meaning, you know, they can keep those and use those for leverage. So, you know, behind the scenes for all the agents and the analysts trying to get access or trying to locate them, one, it's a hard target. So your intelligence collection activities are challenged. And then two, if they're held by a nation-state intelligence service, like the Russians are holding an American, for example, it's extraordinarily difficult to try to do anything on a practical level. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the more the more transparency that organizations like yours has in elevating these kinds of issues to keep it fresh in the American public's mind, the better. Uh, you know, I certainly applaud you for those efforts. Now, let me ask you, how do you go about providing protection for journalists that's traveling to some of these uh, hot zones? Sure. So to kind of um, go back to what our other part of our mission is um, to promote journalist safety, we try to focus on Jim, really. And Jim was a freelance journalist. So we feel that freelance journalists remain at, at more risk than staff journalists because they are often going on their own to dangerous places in the world without uh, necessarily having received training or having any kind of tactical or security support from a big media organization uh, to support them if something happens to them. They just don't and, have the resources to draw upon to do that. Right. Right. But yeah. media outlets will use their work, uh, will pay them for their work. And so when Jim Foley and Stephen Sotloff were killed, it was a wake-up call because they were both freelancers that the media industry had to react and had to make things safer for the freelancers on which they relied. And often those freelancers are going to be local journalists working in these war zones who are the fixers or translators who are who are getting um, access to these these journalists coming from other countries and who are a critical play a critical role. So one of the ways that we do this is is through our work um, with a alliance of media outlets, uh, freelance journalist organizations, and press freedom groups that was formed after Jim and Stephen's death uh, called the ACOS Alliance. And ACOS stands for A Culture of Safety. So this this historic alliance of groups came together to come up with these safety principles, which in a nutshell say that media outlets should not be hiring freelancers who haven't received hostile environment first aid training, who don't have insurance for when things go wrong, and that they should be raising awareness among their newsrooms, among editors, about what are the risks that they are sending journalists out in the field to cover. Margot, do you have providers that teach this or do you do this yourself? Well, we do not conduct training ourselves at the Foley Foundation, but we through this network, are trying to expand access to freelancers to trainings because they're very costly. And there are providers in the network of the ACOS Alliance and its broader network um, who do conduct trainings. And we actually do sometimes provide small grants to our partner organizations who conduct trainings so that freelancers can attend. And so we work on in in that regard, but we also work with this alliance to kind of see if there's a way to get some minimum safety standards that are accessible for all. Well, that's awesome that you're doing that, though. At least uh, you're giving a baseline kind of uh, awareness and some very practical lessons learned and skill sets that you would hope that can help save lives when when the journalists are deployed out to these troubled spots. Absolutely. And and that's not all that we do. What we also have tried to do, because Jim was also a teacher, is to focus on how can we make sure that journalism and communication schools in this country and hopefully eventually across the world are actually teaching journalism students about safety. Because so often journalists get into the profession and they've worked for a couple of years 
And then they're exposed to a scary situation where they were lucky to get out unscathed or simply get wounded. And then they get some training. Um, and it's often seen as a secondary uh, set of, of skills that they're learning when you're looking at covering a story, even if it's not in a war zone. Because as we know, unfortunately, things are becoming much more unsafe for journalists in the United States than we ever imagined would be in the country of the First Amendment. So first, we developed a um, graduate level, robust journalism cor safety course with uh, Medill Northwestern, which is where Jim uh, went to journalism school. We are also in the process of rolling out an undergraduate version, which is smaller safety modules that are designed to be inserted into existing courses. However, a school wants to incorporate them, we want to work with that school because we want this to be in every, every place that's teaching journalism uh, so that journalists are learning risk assessment skills and just being aware of the threats that they can face online while they're still young enough and haven't maybe created as much of an online profile for themselves, they know that they can take some measures to protect their identity because unfortunately online harassment is becoming such a major issue for journalists, particularly female journalists, that we want to try and, and get out ahead of it as much as we can. Well, that's uh, amazing. I'm glad to hear that. I was going to ask about your educational initiatives and it's I, I, quite frankly, I'd love to see some of the curriculum just based on my background. I'd love to see what is being taught. But you're right. That needs to be taught at every school of journalism around the nation and the world just from a situational awareness perspective. People are becoming more aware that there's a gap. Right now, people know there is. And so they're prepared to do things to alleviate that. I think a couple of years ago, that was not the case. People were just assuming that Maybe if you're going into a war zone, that's when you need the training, but you don't need any other kind of training. But journalists are getting arrested in the United States for going to cover protests. And at political rallies, they're being yelled at by both sides of the political spectrum. They are seen as the enemy by many people, and it's very potentially dangerous. And we, we saw with the Capitol Gazette shooting what can happen yeah. when there's violent rhetoric is out there and... And I think it's just important for for today's journalists to be prepared to cover a town hall meeting where things might get rough. I mean, people don't expect that to be a dangerous place, but it very well could be. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I was actually reading uh, not too long ago a fabulous book by a University of Maryland professor, which uh, goes back to the Nixon White House and talked about uh, how the Nixon White House had targeted uh, Jack Anderson of the Washington Post because uh, they were tired of some of the writings and the leaks that uh, Jack Anderson was posting, which is just kind of a, a, a fascinating uh, you know, flashback into time. But Margot, if folks are interested in, in the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation, what's the best place or resource for them to go to to learn more? Well, they can visit our website, which is jamesfoleyfoundation.org. We do have lots of information, including our, our graduate curriculum online. Oh, as that's well awesome. As the, mo the most recent report that we published on hostage policy, which came out last June, and we'll be publishing our next report in April. And we've got lots of events throughout the year people can engage in. We do a 5K charity run every fall, which is a virtual worldwide participation 
anyone anywhere can actually sign up and run for Jim or for any journalist or American hostage that they want to dedicate their run to. So there's lots of ways people can get involved and support the work that we do. But it would be great, you know, if people can just spread the word about these issues, because what it's like for a family going through the the horror of having their loved one be held abroad and sometimes waiting years for them to come home. Well, well said, uh, Margot. Margot Ewing directs the James W. Foley Legacy Foundation. Thank you, Margot, for speaking to Stratfor's Pen and Sword podcast today. And I want you to know, don't hesitate to reach out to me if there's anything I can do for you or for the foundation, because it's something that I'm very passionate in. Thank you so much for giving us this platform today and for your support. The effort to find solutions to the world's most difficult conflicts is informed by human intelligence, and that is often the independent journalist who serves as our eyes and ears on the ground. If we want peace, greater freedom for others and for ourselves, we have to do what we can to protect those independent sources of information. You can find more about the foundation at jamesfoleyfoundation.org. To find out more about Stratfor's work in geopolitics and risk awareness, visit stratfor.com slash subscribe. I'm Fred Burton, and thanks for listening.